I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Um, Chris is not preaching today. He was planning on preaching our pastor, but he's got uh, strong Tom Waits vibes right now. And by that, I mean he doesn't have a voice. It sounds like he's been swallowing nails his whole life. So we, we begged him to not preach today. Uh, we almost had to tie him up to stop him from preaching. Uh, I've known Mark, like I said, since he was in high school. Um, and, and I just want to say that since I've known him, Mark has always been um, a very thoughtful and, and careful human being. What I mean by careful as, is that he's always been careful with God's truths and careful with his words, um, God's words. And he's also been careful with other people. I've, I've, uh, I can remember a number of times where Mark and I have disagreed and I've seen him disagree with others, but he always does it in a way that's uh, winsome and uh, in a way that invites conversation um, and makes you think. And so it's for those reasons that I'm really excited to sit under uh, God's, God's word uh, alongside of you and hear him preach. Before here, he was a deacon at Cross of Christ Church, which was another church plant in Orange or Costa Mesa. Costa Mesa, like I said. Uh, so anyways, without further ado, Mark, come on up, man. We're excited and we're thankful for you. Okay, good afternoon, guys. Um, so I, like Oscar said, I was a deacon at Cross of Christ, but I've been coming here for a while now. Uh, unfortunately, we were a casualty of COVID, um, and I'm really thankful that we had King's Cross to come to as a church. And uh, you may wonder, what's qualifying me to be teaching you today? And the truth is, the only real thing that's qualifying me to teach you today is I'm the only person Chris knew who he knew had sermons written that you hadn't heard yet. So, so here I am. Uh, those, if anybody here has teenagers, which pretty much there's one, but Cole's too good for this. I don't know. Maybe you feel like Love Your Enemies is a Mother's Day sermon. That's not what this is intended to be. This is just what I had in my back pocket. But I'm, I'm really grateful, though, that though the grass withers and the flower fades, God's word endures forever. Um, and it has something to say to all of us, mothers or children. So will you pray with me? And then we'll get into it. Father, I pray that you would use your word and that you would use me to speak life to your people, to call those who are not your people yet um, 
and that you would draw us into a deeper knowledge and experience of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text today, um, it comes from a sermon that Jesus gave during his earthly ministry, and it's recorded in the book of Luke. This sermon shares a lot of attributes with one that is kind of its more popular older brother in the book of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. This one is the Sermon on the Plain, though. Um, It has a lot of the same things. It, It has the Beatitudes, which is just the Bible's way or people who talk about the Bible's way of describing people who are blessed. And it it does the Beatitudes a little different in the book of Luke. In Matthew, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And in Luke, it says, just blessed are the poor. Um, So anytime you hear something repeated in the Bible, it's important to know this is repeated, so it must be important. It's also important to look at what are the differences? Because if God said it twice, he said it differently the different times because he had different points he wanted to make. Uh, But this is in the Sermon on the Plain. And the Sermon on the Plain was a sermon that Jesus was, it's, it's not like, you know, what we all fear when we get onto an airplane that you sit next to an evangelist. It's not that kind of plane, okay? It's a P-L-A-I-N kind of plane. So he's in a flat area, and he's giving a sermon to his disciples. Many of us may think of disciples as the 12 disciples who followed Jesus, but when the Bible in the New Testament talks about the disciples of Christ, it's really just talking about a large group of people, actually, who followed him. Uh, it was common at the time for there to be rabbis and teachers and, and people who someone would choose to follow and say, hey, I want to I learn from you. There was, at this point in Jesus' ministry, there was a large group of people following him around, trying to learn from him. And the Bible calls those people disciples. And so it would have been a mixture of a number of people. And there, there's one point in the book of John where you actually see a number of these people leave. And you find out, no, these aren't like the twelve. These are just people following him around. A lot of them stayed and became Christians and planted the earliest churches. But this is a sermon that Jesus gave to his disciples. And so to understand the significance of what he said, we really have to understand who the people at this time thought Jesus might be and what Jesus' disciples must have hoped he would be. So when, when we think about the people in general, what did they think about Jesus? Um, Jesus asked Peter at one point, well, who do the people think that I am? And, and we get a good description there. One of them is, you know, people said, some, of you, some people think you're John the Baptist. You know, he's, he's dead and you've kind of carried it on. Um, some people think you're kind of Elijah, the spirit of Elijah reincarnated, or, or Jeremiah, um, or a prophet, or something like that. Um, of course, Jesus asked, Luke, or asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And, and he says, the Christ. But there were a lot of ideas about who this Jesus was. He was gaining some traction in his society, and there were a lot of ideas about who he was. Many people thought he might be a prophet. He might be a teacher. And something as you read the Gospels you find out is everyone has this question on their minds, could he be the Messiah? Could this be the promised one who came to save Israel? And so when you think, what do the disciples hope Jesus would be if they're following him and trying to learn from him? Well, they would hope that he's a prophet because they hope that he's giving God's words to them. They would hope that, these, that he's a teacher, and ultimately, their greatest hope would be that he would be their Messiah, their Savior, the one that would right everything that's wrong and bring God's kingdom to earth. So 
Furthermore, we have to ask the questions, what did they expect from a Messiah? They expected someone who would deliver them like Moses did, but better. They expected someone to minister to God on their behalf like Aaron did, but better. They expected someone to conquer their enemies and rule over them and bring prosperity to them like David did, but better. They expected the best to come through the Messiah in every avenue of life, like some types they had seen before, but better. And in that context, what Jesus says, what we've already heard read, must have been surprising and unsettling to anyone with those expectations in so many ways. He just finished, before our passage for today, he gave Luke's version of the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Plain version of the Beatitudes. And what he said there, what he just finished talking about was the poor, his poor, mourning, hungry, and hated disciples are blessed. And you're, if you're expecting someone to give you deliverance, perfect ministry before God, and prosperity, and perfect ruling in this world, that would be jarring. Maybe, is this the Messiah? You may be thinking, I hope not. But he's, he just finished saying the poor, the mourning, the hungry, and the hated are the blessed ones in his kingdom. Now, in our passage for today, he's commanding his disciples to love their enemies. And if you think about it, what do you hope for a judge to come to? What do you hope for a just one to come to? Not to love your enemies and not to ask you to love your enemies. You hope for that person to come and judge your enemies and deliver you. Jesus will do that. We've been learning about that in the book of Revelation. But this is what he's saying today in our context and in their context. That would probably have been unsettling and maybe disappointing. Certainly unexpected. When he's done with this passage, he's going to warn them against judging others lest they be judged too. You may have the same reactions to that. And so, just like this was probably a shocking message to the disciples, this may be a shocking message to you. But more likely, having grown up in the West, it's one that you have explained away. That you've robbed of significance so that it doesn't have to be shocking anymore. For people expecting the Messiah to be a king who would judge their enemies, to conquer their oppressors, and to bring prosperity, this would no doubt be a shocking message unless you were in that crowd and you were poor. And unless you were in that crowd and you were mourning. Unless you were in that crowd and you were hated. If that was you and you heard this message, certainly your response would be, I'm blessed. I get the kingdom. I'm going to laugh. I'm who, who mourning and crying now. And, and it's always been that way. Jesus' message in general has always threatened our wealth in this world and so has threatened the wealthy and cheered the poor. And that's because he's grounded these blessings and these woes that he's already proclaimed in his kingdom that is still to come, his coming kingdom. He's grounded these blessings in his coming kingdom and he's not called poverty good and he has not called anyone to pursue poverty or sadness or hunger or unpopularity. That's self-righteous martyrdom to do those things. He hasn't called us to pursue those things, and he has not claimed that any of these things is the key to living a better life. 
Rather, he's been saying that those who forego the promises of this world in hope for promises in the world to come are blessed because they will receive the fulfillment of those promises continually, forever, not just momentarily. So if you're like the people in Jesus' day, you may find his words in this sermon disconcerting or surprising because he's supposed to be the Messiah who saves us from our troubles. And if you're like me, you may be thinking, I I get that Jesus' coming kingdom is truer and better than the kingdom we're living in right now, and I'm totally behind that. But why are so many of the blessed in Jesus' kingdom poor now? Why are so many of them hungry now? Why are they sad now? Why are they unpopular now? Wouldn't it be better? What's stopping the majority of Christians from being blessed now and blessed later? Maybe a question on your mind. And so Jesus rounds out this part of of the sermon that he's giving with our passage for today. And in that passage, I believe he gives an answer to that question that I just posed in the form of a call to action, which could only ever be grounded in an incomparable hope. And so today's message comes in two parts. And the first is this, when God fills us with his one-way love, we cannot help but fill our world with one-way love. When God fills us with his one-way love, we cannot help but fill our world with one-way love as well. And while the rewards of this world are fleeting and uncertain and always come with strings attached, the second part is that our Father is pleased, he's happy to freely give us a great reward in his eternal kingdom. He's pleased to do so, to freely give us a great reward in his eternal kingdom. So to begin on our text today, What is that call to action which Jesus gives us? Up until now, in the sermon Jesus has been giving, he's been speaking in general terms. He says, blessed are the poor, blessed are all these sorts of people. And that's a general term. He's not saying anything about you particularly, or he's not giving any commands to here's what you should do. He's saying, in general, poor people are blessed, or my my disciples who are poor are blessed is what he's really saying. Um, but now he's changing gears and he's telling us what to do actually if we, if we are his disciples. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish others would do to you, do so to them. And so that's where we start today. And the truth is that I don't think anyone needs a teacher or a preacher in order to understand what Jesus means by this, unless you're looking for someone to explain away his difficult commands. We can make it more complicated and make it something else but it's pretty simple, isn't it? It's clear what he's saying. What he's telling us is to love those who don't love us and to put ourselves at every disadvantage. That's what 
every single one of these commands here means. To love those who don't love you back and to put yourself at every disadvantage in this world. And the truth is that this is really hard. This is fundamentally costly. You know, what, what does this look like for me if I come to this text realistically? What is my first response? Those of you who know me know that I have a fairly laid back and gentle personality. I tend to be really easygoing. It's not easy to rile me up or, or get me real hot about anything. And so I read something like this and my initial response is like, got it. No big deal, because I'm nice, <laughs> right? I think that because I have a nice personality and I prefer to be nice to people rather than mean to people, I think initially that I actually love my enemies. But that's not true at all. That's my personality. That has nothing to do with my character. I do not love my enemies. I hate my enemies. They take from me. They hurt me. They want bad things for me, and I do not love them, no matter how nice I am. So I don't get any points here. That, that's, what, that's what it feels like for me to come up against this passage here. Initially, it feels like, okay, this is, this is something I'm good at. And in reality, I have to realize that I have a drive for self-preservation, and I have a drive for self-gratification that actually makes this impossible, no matter what you may think of how I treat you if you act like an enemy to me. In short, Jesus in this passage here is commanding us to go against our instincts of self-preservation at every turn. And that is painful, isn't it? That's painful to go against your instincts of self-preservation at every turn. This is why people like, you know, one, one person that comes to mind in our time would be Christopher Hitchens, um, or the Romans and the Greeks and the Jews and virtually everyone else in Jesus' time have always come out so strongly against this teaching, which says, love your enemies. They would hear this and they would say, no, this is dangerous, especially to the most vulnerable, especially to those who can get hurt by those who have power to hurt them. Today, we mostly accept love your enemies as a noble concept because this passage has been in our culture's consciousness for hundreds of years. But it's not that obvious, and we may love it, because we haven't looked closely enough at what it really says. If we really took what Jesus said here at face value, I believe that we would sound more like Christopher Hitchens and the Romans and the Greeks because we would realize that Jesus is putting our comfort and our security in this world at real risk. He's not saying if you love your enemies, you'll have a better life. He's not saying this is the life hack to being the best person out there. He is putting much of our security and comfort in this world at a real risk if we actually do this. It's dangerous. 
And so Jesus is giving us a command that absolutely requires belief in an alternative and better kingdom that is yet to come. If there is no alternative and better kingdom yet to come, this is the most dangerous moral advice that anyone could ever give. If we do this, we're staking our hope on this command, Jesus cannot be thought of as a good leader. He's a wolf. He's calling us to put ourselves at real disadvantage in this world. And he's calling us to forego worldly benefits and accept worldly suffering in faith. With that said, we consider what Jesus just finished saying before this passage. No wonder so many of the blessed are poor. Right? If that's how we're living our lives, no wonder so many of the blessed are sad. And yet when we read on, we see Jesus saying a very strange thing. Starting in verse 32, he says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? And he goes on to say, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? And he continues to say, if you lend to those who pay you back, what credit is that to you? And any of us who's actually paying attention should be able to see that that is a very strange thing for Jesus to say. The obvious answer to this question seems to me to be much in every way. Do all of those things benefit me? Right? I mean, ask yourself, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? If I love those who love me, I benefit from mutual affection. If I love those who are my enemies, nothing. I mean, in many cases, you get punched in the face for even talking to them, right? What benefit is that to me to love those who love me? A lot. It's quite a benefit. If, if I do good to those who do good to me, that's a win-win. You're going to pay me back with good. That sounds like a benefit, actually. And if I lend to those who lend, who can repay me? I'm making good investments, aren't I? That's, what a weird thing that Jesus said. What benefit is that to you? And so why does Jesus think, seem to think that this doesn't actually benefit us? It has to do with where he thinks benefits worth having come from. The word translated here as benefit has sometimes been translated as thanks or credit. And actually, that, that word is used here three times, um, and, and the third time it's, it's used, it's translated as the word credit in our translation here. And, and that's probably a clearer way to translate what's meant by this word. Jesus is saying to you, what credit should I give you? for loving the people who are going to love you back. Everyone does that. What credit should I give you for giving to those who will pay you back? That's just smart investing. There is a passage in Galatians that sounds very, very similar to what Jesus is saying here, and it goes like this. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision 
nor uncircumcision counts for anything. And the context here is there was a group of people who were saying, you have to keep the Jewish law if you want to become a Christian. Um, not just the moral law, but the ceremonial law. So if you're a male, you had to be circumcised to be clean. Um, and, and Paul is saying, no. He says, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Only faith working through love. That's the only thing that counts to your credit, is faith in God, which works itself out through love for others. So the question is, when God looks at me, what does he count in my benefit, in my favor? That's the same question that Jesus is asking when he says, what benefit is it to you if you love someone who loves you back? When God looks at me, what does he count in my favor? Does he count shrewdness in my favor? Is he impressed by that? Does he give me points? Does he count good moral behavior in my favor? I'm through the basement on that, so no. Does he count strength or wealth or success or anything else that seems so impressive to us in my favor? Paul answers so clearly for us in this passage from Galatians why Jesus in this passage from Luke does not see any benefit to us loving people who love us or giving to people who pay us back. Because only one thing can God, cause God to add points to our scorecard, and that's go for broke, no contingencies, no backup plan, faith in God. See, you're not actually getting credit for the things that you've done. God is giving you credit for believing him. And that's the gospel, isn't it? Faith in God, which always works itself out in love for our neighbor. Faith in God, which always works itself out in love for neighbor. And this is the only thing that counts in your favor in God's economy. And, and the truth is that you cannot love your enemies or give to those who take from you or bless those who persecute you unless God does something radical to you first. This is not essentially the way to live that Jesus is giving us. He's showing us something that we cannot do, but which is good. The reason God gives you credit when you act like Jesus is commanding you to act is that you can only do that when you hope in him. That's the only way. Another way to put it would be to say that when God gives us faith in him, it leads us to being full of him. And when we are full of God, who is infinite, we finite beings cannot contain that. And the only option that we finite beings have when we are full of our infinite God is for the Spirit of God himself to pour out of our lives and onto others. And the clearest way that we can see this happening is when we gladly give to those who cannot give back. That's how faith in God operates in our human world. We believe in him, and he fills us to overflowing, and we gladly give. We want to give. 
to those who can't give back to us. In the book, Desiring God, which some of you may have read, John Piper gives a really beautiful and clear definition of Christian love. And and he says that love is the overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. It's the overflow of joy in God which gladly meets the needs of others. So sacrificial love is easy to value in theory. And that mostly has to do with our culture. We've been taught to value sacrificial love. We've been told our whole lives that it's a good thing. So we say, good, yes, no, check, yes, good, right? It's easy to value in theory, but the question is, how is it ever possible to practice sacrificial love? We can only give in a way that really costs us if we're full of something better. Think about it this way. If you were to see someone walking down the street, handing out $100 bills and giving keys to Lamborghinis, what would you assume about that person? It doesn't have to be rhetorical. I don't know. What would you assume? Yeah, wealthy and crazy. Yeah, at the very least, you'd assume that person's rich. That person's got money to spare. That's why he's giving stuff away, right? We've got to be full of something better if we're going to give in a way that really costs us. That's the only way to do it. And in that case, when we give love to our enemies, God is actually the one who gets the glory, not us. Because how could I, a finite being, be full to the point of overflowing? He's the one making the impossible possible when I love my enemies. So that, I believe, is the main way that Jesus is answering the question, why are the citizens of the true and better kingdom, so prone to poverty, hunger, sorrow, and unpopularity. Look at the way that we are called to live. Look at what our hearts are prone to doing when we become children of our Father in heaven. We are prone to emptying ourselves into the people around us, even our enemies and those who want to hurt us. The faith God has given us has filled us with a love that's like God's, and it only flows in one direction. It's one way. It's most at home loving enemies and not friends, this kind of love. And it's most at home giving from its fullness, not giving in order to receive this kind of love. In other words, when God fills us with his one-way love through faith, we cannot help but fill our worlds with one-way love as a result. And living this way is very likely to put us at every disadvantage in this world's kingdom. But look at the blessing. Look at the blessing. Look at the credit to your account. You will be full of God. And I know that sometimes that kind of hope in God feels far away. Maybe I shouldn't say sometimes. I know that generally, that kind of hope in God seems far away and theoretical almost. But here's what gives me hope. 
I actually know the peace and security that money can bring. It makes me feel so good when I have a surplus. I can sleep so much better and I can think about other things. And I know how good it feels when I love someone, I feel love and I express and I show love and they love me back. Isn't that an awesome feeling? And I know how scary it is when those things are threatened. You might know that too. And so when I hear that there is something out there that makes intentionally putting all of that at risk, intentionally running the other way, a free and happy choice, how good must that other thing be? I don't feel like God is that good most of the time. Loving enemies, I ask my wife, I'm a hypocrite talking to you right now, okay? She knows me better than anybody. I don't feel like that most of the time, but I have tasted that feeling. I know a little bit of what that's like. I know what it feels like to see clearly by the Spirit and to know that everything I am, to know with everything that I am, that God is more than enough for me. The best is yet to come for everyone who hopes in Jesus' kingdom. And even here and now, when we love our enemies, when we do good to those who hate us, when we give to those who cannot give back to us, we do so not to our ultimate sorrow and emptiness, as many would fear, but because God has filled us with his own inexhaustible and infinite love. The rule in Christendom throughout the ages has always been that God's people are more prone to be poor rather than rich, not because they love poverty, but because they have learned that in Christ, they are already so very rich. They are like the guy walking down the street, handing out the $100 bills and Lamborghinis. We are like the guy walking down the street, handing out the $100 bills and Lamborghinis. In Christ, we are so very rich. Faith in God always leads to fullness with God. And the fullness of God is not like the law of attraction. Have you heard of that before, the law of attraction? It used to be popular to talk about, and now it's sort of assumed. People talk about the universe, and what they're talking about usually is the law of attraction. The idea is I get what I put out there into the universe. Everything is vibrations, and whatever vibrations I put out come back to me. Um, that's not what God is like. The, the fullness of God is not finite, so it doesn't have to say, I'm going to put love into the world because I know I'll get love back if I put it out there. That's what the law of attraction says. That's the best we can do without Jesus to say love your enemies. It'll say, maybe that person's not going to love me, but I'm going to get it back somehow. That's not what the gospel is. It doesn't have to say that. With the gospel, we can lose doesn't have to say, if I put love into the world, I know I'll get love back. I'm going to have a frequency that matches my frequency. God is infinite. The tap of God's love never turns off. So it never needs the love it pours out to come back to it. The fullness of God 
pours out love where there is no love to be found and no love to be returned, not to prove us worthy, but because the infinite love of God has plenty to spare. Like I said, I'm preaching this message to you as a hypocrite. I need to know that that is the God that I worship. That is the God that I serve. As a hypocrite, I am an enemy of God. I have hated God. I do not love the things that he loves, and I do not treasure the things that he treasures. Furthermore, as we've already mentioned, this behavior of loving enemies is costly. And so with a message that comes at such a cost, we have to know it's true. So if I am an enemy of God, naturally, and if I need to know that this is true in order to start walking this way safely, how can I have confidence in either one of those things? And there's only one great answer to that question. Jesus loved his enemies first. Jesus loved his enemies first. And I mean two things by that. One, Jesus loved his enemies before he ever asked me to love mine. And Jesus loved me before I ever thought about loving him. In his life on earth, look at what he said. He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is seeking sinners. I, I, don't, I don't have this verse here, but when he went to the woman at the well, who was disobedient, who was unclean, who was an outcast from the Jews, she was a Samaritan, what did he say? He said, God is looking for such people like her. Jesus said while he was on the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Is there a worse enemy than someone who would crucify you? And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And look at what Paul says about Jesus. He says, for while we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And he says again in Ephesians, but God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. When did God make you alive if he's caused you to be born again? Did he wait for you? No. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, it's not just that he died for us on the cross 
when he knew we were going to sin, he made us born again when we were dead in our trespasses. That's when he approached us, when we were busy disobeying him. Jesus loved us when we were his enemies, not after we loved him. If we love, first John says, it's because he first loved us when we were his enemies. And that is what the Spirit of God did in Jesus. Look at how we benefited. And that is what the same Spirit of God can do in us. Let's hear what Paul says again in the book of Philippians. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That sounds very in line with what Jesus is saying, doesn't it? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So notice this. Paul said, have this mind among you, that's a command, which is yours in Christ. This mind feels so foreign to me. And yet Paul says that in Christ, that same mind that drove Christ to make himself low, to count the needs of others before his own, to die for his enemies, in Christ, this mind is ours too. This is natural to us in our new nature. And just as this mind brought Christ to glory, it will bring us to glory too. That's why this is not a dangerous ethic to follow if we follow it in faith. As Jesus says in verse 34 of our passage for today, he says, your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Finally, we see that loving enemies and giving but not getting is not the key to the kingdom, but it's the path we walk on the way. Loving your enemies is not the key to the kingdom, but it's the path we walk in the way, on the way. And I get that from two things that Jesus says. He starts this passage by saying, but I say to you who hear. And so throughout scripture, it's clear that we only really hear God's message when God grants us the ability to hear his message. So Jesus is not addressing this to people who do not know him, except perhaps to convict them. He's not addressing this to people who don't know him. He's addressing his sheep who know his voice. He's not giving these commands to those who would need to earn his favor, but those who already have it based on his work, his life, death, and resurrection for them. The second thing is that he ends this by saying, you will be sons of the Most High when you do this. He's not compelling action out of his enemies. He's not saying, do this to earn my favor. He's telling his sheep what sort of behavior is consistent with the identity that they already have. In other words, Jesus is not showing us a better way to live. 
He's not giving us pointers for life. He's not giving us life hacks. And he's not giving us some principles that we can use to get into heaven if we follow them. Enemy love is not the key to heaven. It will not get us in, mostly because we'll never do it. However, it is the path that we must walk on the way if we have been born again. So too often when I experience conflict, my internal monologue is something like, I'm trying to love this person. I'm trying to do right. Why isn't it working out? And what's happening there, at least in part, is that I'm expecting enemy love to be a way for me to get the outcomes I want right now. I'm treating this like a technique that's useful and effective at getting me what I want and to make me feel justified before God. I'm ultimately saying to God, God, I'm doing the things you told me to. Now do the things I want you to. But I can never earn citizenship in the true and better kingdom. It must be granted through grace. And though we may be citizens already through God's grace, we're not there yet. And there's only one path that kingdom citizens walk. What Jesus tells us is that that path to the kingdom always includes love for your enemies. It always includes giving without getting. It always includes giving the same one-way love that we've already received. So you may be thinking, that all sounds great, but what steps can I take to walk on this path? So I want to close today by giving the best answer I can. And I think the answer you should take from that question depends on where you're at personally today. And here's what I mean by that. If, if you're here today and you're just totally unsure about God and Jesus, whether it's the commands that he gives or who he says that he is, if you're here today and for some reason you have a hard time seeing yourself walking with him, I would say this, don't leave today and apply this message by trying to love your enemies, okay? <laughs> Not only will it fail, but it's kind of dangerous. It costs you. So don't leave today and try to apply this message by loving your enemies. Don't try to leave today and apply this message by trying to give to those who cannot give back. This is not about three ways to change your life. Six steps to a better you, right? The way that I would ask you to apply this message, if that's where you're at today, would be to look inward at yourself before you try to act on anything. Look inward. See the ways that you don't love your enemies. See that this is not you. Realize that. Be honest with yourself. Look inward. See not only that where you're a sinner, but see where your deep needs are. Maybe you're feeling lonely. Maybe you're feeling angry. Maybe you're feeling empty. Whatever it is, I would ask that you don't try to change your life to please God, but that you would see that you're in need of receiving a love that gives without getting back. That's who we are as people. We need that. We don't bring anything to the table except our sin. Good news, friends. Jesus doesn't take anything except that either. We bring our sin, and that's what he takes. 
you're in need of a God who will love you while you're his enemy. So if that's where you're at today, the way you apply this message is by receiving the love of God towards you when you have nothing to offer him in return. And if you're hearing this right now and you'd like to receive that gift, the battle has already been won. God has already moved you. He's already moved towards you without you helping him at all. All you need to do now is recognize your sin and repent and receive his free forgiveness and praise him truly from your heart. And I pray that you do, and I rejoice with you if you did. If you're here today and you believe in God, but you feel empty, and you feel it when I say that this could be dangerous and that this could cost you, this could bring pain. If you're here today and the call to give without getting feels like it's going to leave you empty, I would say that I know what that feels like, and that's a hard place to be, and I'm sorry. And here's what I believe God is calling those of us in that place to do. One is going to be, if you're a baptized believer, take communion and receive God's sacrifice for you. I would say spend consistent and meaningful time with him. Prayer, fellowship, Bible reading, these are the most consistent, most effective, and should be the most normal elements of our Christian lives. And they're effective through faith. So if you're feeling empty, I'm not saying that God is throwing a law at you that says read your Bible more, pray more, go to church more. If you can find a midweek study, go there too. Um, But I would say that he's offering his means. He's offering these things as a means to his grace, as he always is. And he tells us where to find his grace. I've described a few of the most consistent means of grace. I would say that we're in deep need of the fullness of God. And in our depleted state, we can find hope in hearing from God himself in his word, in speaking to God himself through prayer, in acting as God's own body through our participation in the local church. And so if we love our enemies because God's infinite one-way love flows out of us and into our worlds, we must first be filled with God's one-way love. So what I'm saying to you is if that's where you are, you apply this by hearing it as an invitation to peace and to rest and to fullness and to riches so great that you cannot contain them anymore. So finally, if you're here today and generally speaking, you're in a good place with your relationship with God, but your impulse when you're wrong is to love your enemy. Um, No one's here who doesn't fit in that category, at least the last part. That's your impulse, is to not love your enemy when you're wronged. Your, your impulse is to guard your blessings rather than putting them at risk. I would say welcome to being a human. Welcome to being a sinner. If you're already availing yourself of God's normal means of grace, but loving your enemies is still hard, that's because loving enemies is hard. Loving enemies always costs us. The answer for you is this. Put forth great effort to contradict and put to death the impulses of your flesh because the Spirit is at work in your work, giving you life. You don't 
put forth the effort to depend on your effort, but the Spirit is at work in your work, giving you life. Remind yourself of the hope that you have in Christ. His mind is your mind. Isn't that amazing? That is absurdly cool and almost unbelievable. His blessings never run out. The tap of his love never turns off. When you get wronged and the first thought that comes to your mind is the curse the wrongdoer, don't self-justify. Don't deny that that's where your heart went. Don't deny that that's who you are and what you do. Don't try to make that untrue. That's my impulse. Do bad, then do better. Don't try to make that untrue. Instead, repent in that moment. Work with the power of God's Spirit to pray for the person that wronged you, knowing that that's what Christ has done for you. If you do this, you won't be striving to earn God's love. Instead, you'll be doing the only thing that counts in your favor, believing that God is enough for you and allowing this to operate through you to love others. And this is not easy. It will cost us everything in the kingdom of this world. And so it's no wonder that Jesus says that those who do this will often be poor. But look at the reward. We inherit the kingdom of God. And we are crowned as sons of the Most High. Could anything be better than that? I mean, think about it. The best case scenario with the blessings that this world has to offer is that we die rich and happy with nothing left to look forward to. More often, we die still pursuing money and happiness, but with nothing good to look forward to. The promise of God is that he will fill us with so much that we can love our enemies and give to those who only know how to take and still be full. And that, when we do that, because we believe that God is more than enough for us, our reward will come to us continually, forever, in the true and better kingdom of Jesus. The invitation today is to believe that and pursue that, whatever that means for where you're at. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.